Okay. Come on in. Come on in. Have a seat. There are study guides over there on the table. The tabla. Only everything. Okay. Well, I'm really, really glad to be able to talk with you, to teach you one more time. Uh, it's been a little bit since I've had a chance to teach you on Wednesday nights. So let me give you a little housekeeping. Um, we are going to start our Sunday night Bible studies beginning this Sunday night. It'll just be a game night here at the church. Uh, we'll have, uh, no, because the adults will be up here. They'll be wanting to stay in there, but we will have a game night. Bring a game if you want to play one, but I will also um, try to have some stuff planned. I'll get some notes out there about what we're going to do. That's this Sunday night. Um, we are looking to start back Awana next Wednesday. You are not a part of it. You are grown beyond it. But we're going to start back Awana next Wednesday, so we will open up with kind of our opening uh, time in there with music before we're dismissed in here. So that's just some stuff to let y'all know about. It's kind of an exciting time. We're hitting on all cylinders, except for Andre. Andre is hitting on just one cylinder right now. He's hitting on half of a cylinder. Okay, so... I do want to ask you a question. What was the book that we covered last week in here? First Samuel. First Samuel. So what book do you think we're going to be covering this week? Incorrect. It's not 3rd Samuel. It is 2nd Samuel. 2nd Samuel. 2nd Samuel. Now, who do you think wrote 2nd Samuel? Samuel. Samuel. That would be a really, really, that would be a really good guess. That would be a good guess. But, Mr. Keith, do you think it could be Samuel who wrote 2 Samuel? Do you think he could possibly have done it? Or did something happen in 1 Samuel that would prohibit him from being able to write it? He may have died. So, 2 Samuel is... We don't actually know who the author is. We know it could not be the prophet Samuel. Um, it could be uh, Nathan or Gad. Uh, but Gad is just, you'll read about him. You'll hear more about him uh, in your reading time. But in 2 Samuel, we're not exactly sure who wrote it. But it is continuing the story that we heard last week from 1 Samuel. So in 1 Samuel, the big main idea was the kingdom, right? The Israelites wanted a king. They rejected God as their ruler because they wanted a king. And who did the Israelites raise up as their first king? Who was it? Saul. Who? Saul. You guys, if y'all are in here, y'all have got to be with it tonight, okay? Because, listen, there's going to be a lot of reading. There's going to be a whole lot of reading. 
All right? And I need you to go ahead and just get in your heads. You're going to be opening up your Bibles. You're going to be reading loud and proud, okay? So Saul was the first king who was initiated by the people. Is that the king that God had established? No, it was not. Who was the king that God established? David. David. It was David. David was raised up to be king. Saul did not like that. Saul tried to kill him for a long time. Saul tried to kill him. Through many different ways, Saul tried to kill him. But at the end of 1 Samuel, what happens to Saul? What happens to him? He dies. He dies. Saul is no longer a factor in the story by the time we get to 2 Samuel. <clears throat> Except for at the very beginning, David does hear about uh, Saul's death and Jonathan's death, and he mourns for it. But Saul doesn't enter our story anymore. This is the story of David. And if you're looking at your study guide, understand no, the first one on there. Samuel is divided into two parts. All right? David's triumphs, which is chapters 1 through 10, and David's troubles, chapters 11 through 20. Now, the last few chapters, chapter 21 through 24, those are kind of an out-of-order extra details about David's reign, okay? They're just kind of going back and saying, hey, we didn't mention this before. We'll kind of grab some more details about it uh, here. But 2 Samuel is, it's divided into two parts. You've got David tri- David's triumphs and David's troubles. Now that's significant, okay? What do you think some of his triumphs might be that come out of here? What do you think some of them might be? What, did someone say something? Goliath was actually in 1 Samuel. So what might be a triumph that he has in this one? Remember, Saul is dead. Becomes king. He becomes king. Huh? I I didn't hear it. He was made king, yes, but Saul... Well, he was announced as king, but Saul was still kind of working and kind of moving, and he was still a factor. And people still looked at him in kind of a, in kind of a bit of a kingly, a kingly thought process because kings don't really give up their kingdom unless they die. The fact that David was pronounced king while Saul was still on the throne is very unusual. Very unusual. But Saul and Jonathan are now dead. He's announced as king. He's going, we're going to see the Ark of the Covenant brought back into Jerusalem. Those are triumphs that David has. God establishes a covenant with David. That's a triumph in David's life. But then David has a massive, massive amount of trouble towards the end. And it's brought about because of sin. Let's kind of focus in. Okay, number two, I want to give you this. The main focus of 2 Samuel is God's covenant with David. God's covenant with David. Let me ask you, before it comes up on the screen or anything like that, what is a covenant? You guys have probably heard me say that word 
a hundred times. You've probably heard uh, Pastor Tim or Pastor Drew or Pastor Brad or any of the adults here mention covenants before. What is a covenant? It's a what? A compromise? A promise? Any other guesses? So we throw out that term a lot, covenant, okay? And the truth is, is we need to go and grab that definition. Because this is the last major covenant of the Old Testament. What happens in 2 Samuel is the last major covenant of the Old Testament, okay? Now, let me kind of give you some history building up to those sorts of things, okay? Uh, we see that the death of Saul happens. There's a time of mourning. David does mourn Saul's death. But soon afterward, David is crowned king over Judah. While a guy named Ishbosheth, you guys say Ishbosheth. Ish That's a fun name to say, isn't it? Ishbosheth, Ish which is one of Saul's surviving sons, is crowned king over Israel. So David's king over Judah. Ishbosheth is king over Israel. A civil war does break out. Ishbosheth is murdered. And the Israelites ask David to reign over them as well as over Judah. So David assumes the kingdom over all of it. Okay? David moves the country's capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. He moves the ark. And it's during that time after he moves the ark that God establishes a covenant. But again, what is the covenant? What is a covenant? Well, I've got a definition for it. All right, it's number three on your page. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a formal and binding agreement. It is different from a contract because it is relational and personal. So, Mr. Keith, you have bought a vehicle before, right? Did you have to sign a contract to buy that vehicle? Absolutely you did. There was an exchange of money, you received the vehicle, and you also agreed that I don't have enough money for it right now, but I will pay until I have paid off all of it. That is a contract, okay? There is an establishment of saying, I will give you this if you give me that. Contracts are formal and they are binding, but a covenant is different. Because let me ask you this, Mr. Keith, when you went there and when you bought that car, when you bought that vehicle, did you say to them, I am going to be your children's godfather and I'm going to take them fishing every week. Why didn't you do that? It'd be a little weird, wouldn't it? That'd be really weird. See, a contract is something that is formal and it's binding, but it has no personal relationship to it at all. A covenant has a personal relationship. In fact, it is defined by the relationship. 
types of covenants that you see are like the marriage covenant. We take a covenant vow that we will love each other, that we will be with each other in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. You guys have heard that covenant before. A covenant's different. Now, when God establishes His agreements with the people of the Bible, He never establishes a contract. He always establishes a covenant. Because the reality is that with God, with God, there is nothing I can give Him that will ever get what I need. With Mr. Keith wanting to buy a vehicle... He had money. He could give money that was something they needed and wanted and there was an exchange there so he could get something he needed and he wanted. With God, there is nothing I can give that He doesn't already own. So why does God establish a covenant? Because God's not interested in my stuff. God is interested in me. He's interested in those with whom he has a relationship with. Does that make sense? So, there are five major biblical covenants. Alright? They're going to be up on the screen. Five major biblical covenants. And we're going to need to read. Okay, so I need someone in Genesis 9. Who's got that one? Emma. I need someone in Genesis 12. Casey. Uh, Logan, I want you to hit Genesis 15. Someone get Genesis 17. Lydia. Exodus 19, who's got that? Exodus 19, Ava. Exodus 24, who's got that? Kalen, who's got Exodus 31? Go for it, Amelia. Who's got 2 Samuel 7? Who's got that one? Actually, we don't have to take that one because it's on your study guide, so I'll take that one. Someone get Hebrews 8. Who's got that? Drew, Hebrews 8. There's going to be a lot of reading, guys, so you guys are going to have to be there with it, okay? So there are five major biblical covenants in the Bible. Five major ones, okay? Four of them are in the, New, are in the Old Testament. Excuse me, one in the New Testament. All right, let's look at the five major biblical covenants. Who had Genesis 9? Read it loud so everyone can hear. Thank <laughs> you. 
Alright, who is God talking to when He gives this covenant? God said to? No, that's not why it wasn't Abraham. God said to? It's about a rainbow. It's about the animals that were just saved from the flood. Noah. This is a covenant between God and Noah. It's known as the Noahic covenant. Alright? This is a covenant that's made and it's based upon the relationship that God is going to have with people, with Noah, with all of the living creatures. What about Genesis 12, 1 through 3? Who had that? The Lord said to Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make it to a great nation, I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the people on earth will bless through you. Alright, this is the Abrahamic covenant, alright? And we see it kind of brought forth in a few different places because it takes a long time for Abraham to see God's side of the covenant. Alright? God initiates the covenant in Genesis 12. Who had Genesis 15? Go for it. We see there that when Casey's, when he read it, it was a covenant between Abraham and his family. With Where Logan read, it's a covenant between Abraham and the land he would inherit. And what about in Genesis 17? Who had that? Read that for us. Circumcised. You shall be you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and you. Okay. God established a covenant between Abraham and his family, Abraham and the land he would have, and he said, and I'm going to give you a sign. It was circumcision. He said that circumcision would be the sign. If you don't know what that is, it's okay. There is no need to worry about that. But understand, it was given as a sign to keep Abraham's family, Abraham's family. It was meant to be a sign to where if you married someone who was not a part of that Abraham's family, his covenant, when they saw you, they looked at you and they said, there's something different about you. It was given as a sign and it was supposed to set you apart as different. Exodus chapter 19. Who had that one? Go for it. Thank you. 
Here we have a new covenant being established. And who is it that God's talking to when this one's being established? The Israelites. He's talking specifically to Moses, right? And the Israelites. This is the Mosaic covenant. Specifically, he's talking to all of Israel, his people. But he's talking specifically to Moses. What about 24? Who had that? Who had chapter 24? Who did? Go for it. And Moses wrote down all words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent a young man of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed uh, peace offerings and oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in a basin, basin, and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of hearing the people, and they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obligated. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you is accordance with the, all these words. Alright, understand this. There is a law that is given to Moses, but the law is only satisfied through blood. What an incredible illustration to have blood thrown on you to recognize the, the covenant is only sealed through blood. What about chapter 31, Exodus 31? Who had that one? Go for it. So understand this, God gave them a law. He said the law can only be satisfied with blood. And not only is your salvation, your right to be in God's family satisfied through blood, but your sanctification, the process of growing with God is satisfied only in God. Only in Him. 2 Samuel 7, 12-17. We're going to hit a lot more of this here in just a little bit, but I'm going to read it to you. It is on your study guide if you want to follow along. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be to Him a father and He shall be to Me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So understand, this is the covenant that we're going to hit on a lot tonight. Who is this covenant being spoken to? David. This is the Davidic covenant. 
The, those are the four major biblical covenants in the Old Testament. There's one more that really needs to be covered that you're not going to get to for a while in this study of Emmaus Road. But it's Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, but I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and upon their hearts I will write them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Understand there is a new covenant that is given in Christ. It's not a covenant that is established the way that these others were established where it's made with personal relationship where you've got it like it's the Abrahamic covenant or the Noahic covenant or the Davidic or the Mosaic covenant. No, this is not a covenant made with one person and the rest of the world will be blessed with this one person. This new covenant is made through one person and that one person is Jesus Christ and that one person, Jesus Christ, is establishes a covenant that will impact all. It does currently impact all of the world. So those are the five major biblical covenants. Do you all understand the covenant before? Because that's y'all have got to get covenant before we move on. I know we blew through those covenants. But do you guys see how God establishes not just a contract, but He establishes a personal relationship with those that He enters into an agreement with. Do you guys see that? Do you all understand that? And that every single one of the agreements, the personal relationship, it's all contingent on what God can do. And it does not hand or hang any of its certainty on the strength of man. None of it does. You guys see that? You guys understand the covenant? Any questions before we move on from there and we really start diving into 2 Samuel? Any questions? No? Let's do it then. Let's move into 2 Samuel, okay? So... We've already established this number five. David is made king over Judah and Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Let me just read it for you really quickly. It says this, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel. And Yahweh said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David cut a covenant with them in Hebron before Yahweh. Then they anointed David king over Israel. Now David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. 
David is made king over Judah and Israel. Do you guys remember the name of the guy who I said at first was the king over Israel and they had to have a civil war? Do you guys remember his name? If you want to, you can look on this second page, really fancy, and you can actually see his name in this second paragraph right here. Ish Bo Ish Is that what you said? You said Ish Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth got taken down. And David was made king over Judah and over Israel. And guys, David is fired up. He's excited. He's seeing the hand of God move. He's seeing that God is keeping His promise to David that David would be the king, that he would sit on the throne and not just the throne of Judah, but over all of Israel. David is seeing this fulfilled and David is excited. Now, there is something that carries over from 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, okay? The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant has not been in Jerusalem. It has not been in Jerusalem. It was kept away because of all the warring and because of all of the, um, the fighting and because of all the instability that's going on. Now tell me very quickly, what is the Ark of the Lord? What is the Ark of God? What is it? Mm-hmm. It is known as the place where God's feet rest. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. What you got, Dad? Yeah, it uniquely represented God's presence. Wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, God gave it to the Israelites to represent my presence will be here. And it's a, it was a really cool thing to think about, okay? What it was done or the way it was designed, it's like a great big box. Have you ever seen Indiana Jones? You've seen um, the, them kind of do a replica of what it might have looked like, okay? There is a great big box. It has... Um, it has uh, these poles that would stick out of it, two of them that would stick out so that the priests could carry it on their shoulder. There would be two on the back, two on the front. It was not going to be too heavy. Inside, you had the, uh, the Ten Commandments. You had the, uh, the manna from the desert. And you had Aaron's staff, which budded. That was all in there. Now, it's unique in this way. The lid, does anyone know what the lid was called? It actually had like a, a name. And on the lid, there were these two cherubim angels. They would be sitting like on their knees and their wings would be covering up their faces. If you want to see what it might have looked like, we actually have one. We actually have a, a, a model of the Ark of the Covenant and I can show it to you a little bit later on. Not right now, a little bit later on. But... The Ark of the Covenant's lid was called something. Does anyone know where it was called? It was called the Mercy Seat. It was called the Mercy Seat. Now, it was represented that it's not the place where God sat like you would sit in a chair. But it was the place where He would, the illustration was, where He would rest or sit His feet upon the earth. Because God sits on His throne and they would say that the ark represented where He rests His feet 
and uniquely touches the earth. Ha. Huh? Yeah, like a foot rest. It was known as the mercy seat. Now, there were very strict instructions about how to deal with the ark. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. And, and guys, get this. If you dare, even to this day, if you dare to presume, or, or to presume, if you dare to assume upon the mercy of God, if you dare to say, I get the mercy of God just because, if you dare to live in that thought process, you live in a dangerous place. David saw the ark of God. He wanted to bring it home. He wanted to get it back. And so he decides to initiate bringing the ark of God back. But something happens. Something happens while we're moving the ark back. And number six on the study guide is going to show you just a little glimpse of what's going to happen. And we're going to read it. I'm going to read 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 9. I need someone to get Exodus 25. Who's got that? You, you want to? Exodus chapter 25. Who wants Exodus chapter 25? Casey. Who wants Isaiah 64? You go for that, Lydia. All right. The holiness of God when He's bringing the Ark of the Covenant back, the holiness of God is surprising, it's powerful, and it's frightening. Something happens when they bring the Ark back. And it snaps David out of any presumption he might have that he is greater than he ought to think he is. It snaps him out of a place of of thinking that he somehow has won this kingship all on his own. Let me read to you what happens. And then we're going to dialogue about it. We're, by the way, we are not going to cover all of 2 Samuel. We will cover everything that we need to. But we're really going to cover three major parts of 2 Samuel. Let me read it to you. 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Then David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they drove the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. This is exciting. They've got the cart. They've got the ark on the cart. And Uzzah is leading the cart. This is exciting. They're bringing it back home. It's on its way. Everyone, these 30,000 people, they're getting fired up because the ark of God is coming back. They're getting excited. And this is what happens. So, they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Now David, 
and all the house of Israel were celebrating before Yahweh with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Then they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, and Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen nearly upset it. Now hold on. Hold on. The oxen, which are pulling the cart, the cart that has the what on it? The Ark of the Covenant. These oxen are pulling the cart. The cart is on its way. Everyone's celebrating. All of a sudden, the oxen hit something that makes them trip, makes them fall. The cart starts to tip. What do you think starts to happen to the Ark? The Ark is starting to fall. Uzzah reaches out of his hand just to steady the Ark. Verse 7. And the anger of Yahweh burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of Yahweh's breaking out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of Yahweh that day. And he said, how can the ark of Yahweh come to me? What happens bringing the ark back? Yeah. What happened? What are they bringing the, the ark back on? A what? A what? A cart? A wagon? Something like yeah. What's what's bringing? What's pulling it? All right. What happens to the oxen? And the ark starts to slide. What does Uzzah do? And what happens to Uzzah? He dies right then and there. God strikes him down dead immediately. Why? Why? The ark of God represented God's holiness. It represents His justice. It represents His righteousness. The holiness of God will bear no unclean thing. No sin. The holiness of God will not tolerate any wickedness. Uzzah reaches out to steady. And we can sit there, all of us can sit there and say, hey, well, I mean, that kind of seems like an okay thing to do, right? That kind of seems like that's okay to do. But God strikes Uzzah right then and there dead. And I love what R.C. Sproul said when asked, what was Uzzah's sin? What was his sin? R.C. Sproul said, Uzzah's sin was the sin of assumption. He assumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt it was going to fall into. But his hands were not. His life was not. The holiness of God was surprising to Uzzah, David, and all of those people. It was powerful and it was frightening. What about Exodus 25, 12 through 15? Who had that? Go for it. Cats pour golden rings for it in place and then one of them is four feet. Two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. Make poles of cyan wood and overlay them with gold. 
Alright, that is a description of how you're supposed to carry the ark of God. Is it supposed to go on a cart? What is supposed to be used to carry it? Poles that go through those rings. People are supposed to carry it. It is never to ride on a cart. They were breaking God's command by putting it on a cart. Uzzah should have never had to place his hand on there anyway. What about Isaiah 64.6? I think Lydia had that one. Right, I want you to read that one for me, okay? You read Isaiah 64, 6. Lydia, you'll get the next one. All right. We have all become like one who is, is unclean, and all for our righteous deeds are like a uh, filthy. Horrid. A horrid. Polluted. In other words, even Uzzah's, what he thought, act of righteousness to just stop the ark, that was an unclean rag. It was filthy before God. We've got to hurry. The holiness of God does hit. And it hits hard. It hits fast. It's scary. It's terrible. Number seven on the study guide. David loved the Lord, but David failed the Lord. David loves God. He's scared to death of God at this point, but he loves God. But David does fail God. So, Lydia, I want you to read 2 Samuel 6, 14. Uh, actually, I want you to read 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 6. I'll read 2 Samuel 6, 14-22. So Lydia, you'll get 2 Samuel 7. I need someone to get 2 Samuel 11, 1-5. Emma. Uh, and then 2 Samuel 11, 14-17. Who wants that? Thank you, Logan. You're getting 14-17. Uh, and then verses 26-27 of 2 Samuel 11. Thank you very much. 2 Samuel 12, 1-10. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give... I've already given you some. You want the 1 through 10? All right, who's getting 14 through 17? You want 14 through 17? All right. All right, let me read the account here. 2 Samuel 6, verses 14 through 22 says this, And David was dancing before Yahweh. By the way, they did bring the ark into uh, Jerusalem. They did bring it home. David was dancing before Yahweh and with all his strength, and David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of Yahweh with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of Yahweh came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of Yahweh and placed it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. Then David completed offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh of hosts. And he apportioned to all the people, to the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and of one of raisins to each one. Then all the people went each to his house. But David returned 
to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has glorified himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants, maids, as one of the worthless ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before Yahweh who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before Yahweh. And I will be esteemed even more lightly than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken with them, I will be glorified. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child that day of her death. In other words, David danced before the Lord and David put on a linen ephod. What is that? That's the same thing that Samuel was wearing in 1 Samuel. And he's dancing before the people because he's celebrating God. Now there are some people who say, well, he was uncovering himself. He was was being inappropriate. He was wearing something that was not covering him. No, he's wearing a priestly linen ephod like Samuel wore because he's recognizing the holiness. The ark of God is coming into the land. He is excited. He's dancing. And Michael looks at him and he's not in his kingly robes. He's acting like one of the buffoons, one of the fools. Look at all these maids over here looking at him. He's an embarrassment to me. He's not acting like a king. He is a sham. And David said, you know what? I'll dance even bigger. I'll become even more celebratory. Why? Because David loved the Lord. And his love goes even further. In 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 6, what does that say? So David says, as he looks at himself coming into the city and he's celebrating the Lord, he looks that the Ark of the Covenant is put in just a tent. He says, I want to build a big, fabulous, amazing home for God's presence. I want to build a huge house for God. And God tells him, I will have a house. I will have a temple. But you won't build it, David. Rather, your son will build it. And that's when he goes a little bit further on down. That's when he goes into the Davidic covenant a little earlier on. So David loves God. David loves the Lord. He loves Yahweh. But understand this, David fails the Lord. Now, so far we've seen David's triumphs. We're about to see David's biggest failure. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. Who had that? Go ahead and read it for me.
And they say it one more time. Ammonites. The Ammonites. It's okay. Besieged. Bathsheba. Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, Eliam, the wife of Uriah. Purified. So what happens there? David is up. He's, he's not where he's supposed to be. David is supposed to be at war with all the rest of his men. David's not. David's sleeping at the palace. He can't sleep one night. He gets up, starts walking around on the roof. He looks out and sees a beautiful woman who's bathing. She's, by the way, she's bathing to purify herself, which means she's cleaning herself off ritually. All this is doing is to say that she was not with child at the time that David saw her. He sees her. He thinks she's beautiful. Because he's the king, even though he knows that's another man's wife, he says, she's going to be my wife. We just won't get married. And he takes her in, and she becomes pregnant because he treats her like his wife. He commits adultery. It goes further. Verses 14 through 17. Go for it. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Jacob and sent it by hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah the forefront of the hardest fighter, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And that Jacob was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Jacob. And some of the servants of David among the people fell, Uriah the Hentites also died. So this is what happens. She says, I'm pregnant. And so he tries to get Uriah to come back and to say that's his kid, even though it's not. And David knows it. Uriah doesn't do it. And so... David sends Uriah back to Joab, who's over the armies. He sends him back with a message. Hands them, Uriah hands this message to Joab. Joab opens it up and says this, put Uriah in the front of the battle, rush towards the enemy, and when you guys are getting close to meeting in battle, have everyone else turn around and run except for Uriah. Uriah is slain in battle. Guys, this is a man who loves God. But he is failing terribly. 
about verses 26 through 27. So after all of it's said and done, he says, well, now I can just marry Bathsheba. He takes her. He marries her because he's killed her husband and because he thought she was beautiful. Let me ask this, guys. When God established his kingdom, was he establishing it for the king over his people to be able just to hold power over them? Or was he giving them a king who was supposed to represent God to his people? They were supposed to represent God, but that did not happen. David failed. He failed horribly. Well, about uh, real quick, read verses uh, 1 through 10 of chapter 12. Who had that? Nathan the prophet came and confronted David about it. He was able to confront David because he was the prophet of God, because God had given him the message to do so. He comes, he tells him a story. There's this family who loves this lamb. It's like one of the children. And then a rich man comes, and instead of killing one of his own lamb, he takes this lamb that the family loves, and he slaughters that and kills it. And David gets angry over the death of a pretend lamb but not angered over what he's done to Uriah and not angered over what he's done to Bathsheba. I want you to know this, that Nathan says, well, David's words are, the man who has done this deserves to die. You know what Nathan says to David? You are the man. So every time you hear someone say, you are the man, biblically speaking, that's not really a compliment. Dang. What did he say? Did you say dang or dank? Okay. I was like, is that just a slur, a slang that I haven't heard before? All right. 
David loved the Lord. We saw it. He brought the ark back. He wanted to have a house for God. He danced before the Lord. He loved God. But David failed the Lord. And guys, this hits us like a freight train because we're like, wait, I thought he was supposed to be the king. I thought he was supposed to be the one. I thought he was supposed to be it. And guys, let this be a lesson for me and for all of you here that there's not a person in this world who will not fail you at some point, okay? I will fail you. Pastor Drew will fail you. We are not God. We are not the Son of God. There will be times if you ask me a question... I'm not going to know the answer. There's going to be a time if you ask Drew to help you out, he might not be able to do it that moment. There's going to be times when we fail you, but there is only one who will never fail. But if we placed our eggs, if we put our, if we put our hope, if we placed our eggs in the basket of David and David alone, then we have to understand David fails. Everyone fails. Tragically, the son that Bathsheba was going to bear dies. It is, it is, a, it is a, a devastating thing to read. The baby dies. The son, the child, dies. That baby failed because it couldn't live. Everything can fail except God. Real quickly, the remainder, this is number eight, the remainder of David's reign is filled with unrest. That's chapters 12 through 20. You see just unrest after unrest after unrest. You see pursuit by enemies. You see sword. You see conflict. You see war. You see nothing but trouble for David for the entire rest of the book. So what is the point of 2 Samuel? I told you at the beginning, the main point of it, the main focus is the what. The main focus of 2 Samuel is the what. Well, that's, the, that's kind of, the, that's kind of the, the layout. It's the covenant that God makes with David. We need to go back to that covenant for just a moment. Because in that covenant we find we find an understanding of what's going on here, okay? David was supposed to be it. We thought he was going to be it. He's supposed to be the king we've waited for. If you're reading the Bible and if you're looking for this king, you think David's it because God raises him up as the king. But then David fails and you're like, no, there must be a greater king. There must be a more wonderful king. There must be a greater Lord. And we see it in the Davidic covenant. Number nine, it was the covenant of God and his holiness that makes David a man that makes David a man after God's own heart. Here in just a moment, you guys are going to read that. David is called a man after God's own heart. Where is he called a man after God's own heart? Well, two main places. Someone read 1 Samuel 13. 
14. Who wants to do that? Emma. And someone get Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Lydia. I'm here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, so I'll read verse 13. And someone get Luke 1, 31 through 33. Go for it. David is called a man after God's own heart, but how can we say that about David when we know the depth of his failure? How can we say he is a man after God's own heart? How can we say that? How can the Bible say David's a man after God's own heart? Look at what he did. God just struck down Uzzah just for touching the ark. Look at what David did. He's called a man after God's own heart. How? Why? Look at uh, who had 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. Read that for us. The Lord is talking about choosing someone who would be after his own heart. A man after God's own heart. It's talking about David there. Acts chapter 13, verse 22. And when you have removed him, you raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, and a man after my, after my heart, who, I, who will do all my will. The New Testament also says David was a man after God's own heart. It says the Scripture testifies to it. How? How is that? Guys, it's not because of the strength of David. It's not because of the strength of his kingship. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13 says this, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. It was never because David was worthy. It was never because he was so great. It was never because he was such a mighty warrior. It was never because of anything like that. It was never because his heart was so pure. It was because God was so pure and God made a covenant with him. God said, I am interested in making you mine. And because I'm going to make you mine, David, you will never be anyone else's. 2 Samuel 12, or 7, 12 through 17. Remember, David wanted to make a house for God. He loved the Lord. He wanted to make a house for him. But God said, No, 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 that's not going to be for you. He said, When you're I will raise who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, historically, Solomon, the son of David, he was the one who built the temple. He was the one who built the first temple. But did he remain forever? No, he didn't. His kingdom was not forever. Solomon died. This is not merely talking about what Solomon did. But it does include Solomon. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, Jesus committed no iniquity. The Son of God committed no iniquity, but Solomon did. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Understand, David's throne, his earthly throne, it failed. It failed when David failed, Solomon failed, and down, Sol- or down David and Solomon's line. The earthly line failed. But the heir, the son of promise, established a kingdom forever. There is an heir to the throne who was born. And that heir to the throne did establish a kingdom forever. And the Bible calls it not just a new kingdom, it calls it a new covenant. So who is it who established this new kingdom, this new covenant? Luke chapter 1, verse 31 through 33. see there that David started a kingdom he couldn't finish. Why? Because David wasn't worthy. He was a failure. Just like me. And just like you. 2 Samuel is beautiful because it shows us that even though the people we look to and even though the people we see as being so powerful and so important and so amazing and so grand, even though those people not only might fail us, even though they will fail us, there is one who was sent that will never fail. There is one who is given who does not drop the ball. There is one who has come that has not sinned has not fallen short of the glory of God. And His name is Jesus. We must rest on Him. It's interesting when you look at the sin of David and the punishment of God for that sin. Who did the punishment for that sin fall upon? It fell upon Jesus. But right there immediately, did David see anybody? That, that, that was punished immediately for that sin? Who was it? The baby. See, David sinned, and the one who received the condemnation, the one who received the punishment, was the baby, was the son. And that son stayed dead. David even says, it's, some of you, most of you know, 
I think all of you know I've lost a son. I have a son who's not alive. And he's buried um, right now uh, in Trustful at, the, at the, the cemetery there. David, when he considered his son's death, I just want to read it to you. Then Yahweh smote the child that Uriah's wife bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore sought God about the boy. David fasted and went and spent the night lying on the ground. The elder of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. The servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child has died? He might do himself harm. And David saw that his servants were whispering together. So David discerned that the child had died. So as David said to his servants, Has, has the child died? And they said, He has died. So David arose from the ground washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of Yahweh and worshipped. Then he came to his own house and he asked, and they set food before him and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food? Then he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? Yahweh may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. But he will not return to me. That verse 23, 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, that's on my little boy's Malachi's um, tomb. The marker. Because the reality is, is that there is an afterlife, and it is even for children, for babies. But guys, understand, this child was given and David recognized that even this child, can I bring him back again? And the answer to that, no. David cannot bring him back again. This child will never come back to life. He'll be in heaven. He'll live there. But I cannot see him rise again. Guys, we need a son who will take the punishment for our sins who will die the death we deserve, but who will come back again. That's what we need. We need the Son of God. We need the Christ. We need Jesus. And praise God. He sent His Son, who was perfect, who did not fail us, who died the death that we deserve, and He did not remain dead Rather, he came back alive. So that's Second Samuel in a nutshell, guys. I didn't get even a quarter of the book read to you. We have three touchstones I wanted you to see. Let me pray for us. Drew's going to sing. We're going to sing this God who's given us a son that lives and that we can have life in. I want you to sing loud and proud and rejoice in the God who's worth celebrating of. Most gracious Holy Father, we do love you and we praise you and we thank you for the blessings that you give. And Father, I'm so sorry 
for where I have failed you. Lord, I have failed you so many times. And God, I will fail you more. And Lord, when I look at myself and when I see my struggles and my iniquity, there can be no hope. Just like when I look to David, when I try and think that maybe he's the king that we're hoping for, there can be no hope in him. But Father, you sent your son Jesus to be the great and high king who would never fail, who would take the punishment that we deserve, die the death that was owed to us. But Father, he would rise to life. He would raise so that we could have life. And I pray that that truth would be more and more real and more and more sweet and precious to us. It's in your Son's name, the name above every name, the name of Jesus, that we ask these things in for sake. Amen.